Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now covering in this audio, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to call this section Christ our Advocate, our Lawyer, our Attorney. And coupled with that, John discusses a new commandment as opposed to an old commandment. So we've got two topics in this section. Our context is this in chapter 1, the 10 verses of chapter 1. John talked about fellowship, koinonia, fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. So let's begin now in 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Now, John addresses his readers as little children. John was probably writing from Ephesus, most people seem to think, and he's probably referring to churches, Christians in churches around Ephesus. He calls them his little children, as I said just a minute ago, because either they're because it's because they're his spiritual children because of his advanced age. He probably borrowed the expression calling his Christian children children. He probably heard that from Jesus. Je- Jesus said in John 13:33, "Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. Children, I'm with you a little longer." So Jesus called his believers children too. John uses that expression frequently through this letter of 1 John. I'm writing you these things. What things? Well, he's talking about the purity and holiness of God. Remember that God is, there is absolutely no darkness in him. In chapter chapter 1, he talked about that. And also he talked about fellowship, how we can have fellowship with God by not having darkness in ourselves, getting rid of sin in our lives. We can have fellowship with God, walk in the light even as he is in the light. So all those things he talked about in chapter 1, he's writing to his little children so that they may not sin. Now, does that mean that they may not ever sin, not even in the least, not even one little time? Well, if it does mean that, that contradicts what John said in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us because nobody can live a life of sinless perfection. We know that. Any, anybody knows that. So John is obviously not saying that. I'm writing these things so that you may, ne- may not ever, ever sin. Well, what does he mean? Well, probably, as John Gill says, it means, so I'm writing to you, little children, so that you may not live in sin habitually. In other words, you might stumble every now and then, but you're not hanging out in a bar all day long. You're not sitting around watching pornography all day long. He's saying you need to get out of that. You need to stop doing that, these things that cause you to habitually sin. Now, I've got an idea, which I didn't get from the commentators. I'm wondering whether John is talking about a particular sin. I'm writing to you, little children, so that you may not sin by listening to these proto-Gnostic, docetic heretics that have so bedeviled the churches around here. It seems to me that's one of the organizing themes of the first two chapters of the book. What my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, my flesh has handled. Jesus, we bear witness to this. He's talking about Jesus as human, Jesus as a fleshly human being, and John is warning against following those heretics, and so maybe this is what he's saying. I'm warning you so that you stay out of the sin of the heretics. I think that's a perfectly reasonable interpretation. But whatever it is, the point is is to stop sin. Whatever sin it is, whether it's general, occasional sins, or whether it's the particular sin of following heretics, the purpose is to get rid of sin, which is a good thing. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that sin here is an occasional sin, an occasional serious sin. Adam Clark says, through ignorance, inexperience, temptation, or unwatchfulness, Christians might fall into a sin, and, and John is trying to stop them from that. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown says, quote, he is speaking of a believer's occasional sins of infirmity through Satan's fraud and malice. Well, I go along with that. Either one, I just present my idea as an idea, in case it might be true. If anyone does sin, and this means an occasional sin, if it happens, it doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen, but it's, if, if it does happen, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, that word advocate, is, of course, is a very well-known word. It's used all the time. It's translated as sometimes as helper, sometimes as counselor. It really means an attorney, a lawyer, someone who helps, helps us in court, defends us against the charges of the law brought to us by the judge. We have an advocate that says, no, Your Honor, he's not guilty. The fine's already been paid. The blood of Jesus paid that fine. It's not really a fine. It's more like a death penalty. It's already been taken care of. So we have an advocate. And so whatever sin these little children might commit, there's an advocate that's going to take care of that sin. Jesus is going to take care of that sin. He's going to tell the judge, hey, it's been paid for. So advocate is like a lawyer. Some translations have comforter, which I think is an extremely misleading translation. Some of them have helper. That's not very good either, in my opinion. Advocate. This is a Holman Christian Study Bible. Advocate. Counselor. Father, uh, lawyer. I guess they don't want to put that dirty word lawyer in a translation of the Holy Bible. That might be yeah, one reason why we don't see the full force of the translation in a lot of translations. So this advocate that we have, who is the we? The we includes John. So John includes himself in the category of one who might sin and need an advocate which shows he's humble. He's not trying to say that he's more hum more holy than anybody else. He's a human being just like anybody else. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. The NIV Study Bible comments here that attorneys in God's court have to be sinless. Jesus Christ is the Righteous One. He's the sinless one. Now, you know, it's interesting. In, in law courts, in human law courts, attorneys have a strict code of conduct, which is kind of laughable when you think about it, considering attorneys' reputations. But I guess because of their reputation, because they have so much power that can be abused, the courts try to constrain lawyers with all these codes of ethics. I remember when I was practicing law, I had a big fat manual, South Carolina Code of Legal Ethics, sitting on my desk. And there was all kinds of things you could do wrong and get sued for doing wrong, trying to keep the lawyers straight with a legal code. Well, you don't need to do that with Jesus. He's a righteous lawyer. He's the righteous one. He's a sinless lawyer in God's court. We go down to verse 2, 1 John. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now, that word propitiation, the Greek is halasmas. It is translated variously, and the English translations have led to all kinds of theological confusion, maybe even sometimes some controversy. And so I am going to try to straighten that out. First of all, let me give you some examples of how it's translated. Adam Clark calls it the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's exactly how the NIV translates it. Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, now we need to know what does atoning mean. The NIV marginal note here says that propitiation is, quote, he is the one who turns away God's wrath, taking away our sins. So it's a turning away of wrath. The NIV study Bible says it's an appeasement. Well, that's what turning away of wrath means. A satisfaction. God's anger is not anger anymore, so he's happy with us now. All right, so I've already mentioned two words, atonement and propitiation here. And there's another word that comes up sometimes is expiation. Three English words. The differences between the two are enough to drive you crazy. 
and the, and their definitions overlap, and so sometimes one translation will use one word, some will use another word, and it has led to a whole bunch of theological confusion. I saw an article by R.C. Sproul who said that people ask him about this all the time, and I remember asking myself this all the time too, so let's see if I can explain the differences. Expiation is the act of taking away the guilt of a person. For example, God's plan of salvation provides expiation for our sins. It's just taking away of guilt. Atonement is that which is given in order to take away the sin of a person. In other words, God accomplishes expiation through the atonement of Jesus' blood. Jesus' Jesus's blood atones for our sins. He gives his blood in order to that our sin might be expiated. A common example, even in English, of that is the husband gives his wife roses to atone for his forgetting of her birthday. To atone, we use that word in English. It's just something you give to somebody else to make up for something. And so, and propitiation is the changing of God's attitude away from wrath towards friendship, or to, at least towards neutrality, as a result of the expiation. So you see, the three terms are closely related. Expiation means the act of taking away. The guilt of the person, the propitiation, is the act of taking away the wrath that's in God. And atonement is the mechanism by which that is done, where something is paid to take care of the penalty. So however it's translated, Jesus does all that. He expiates our sins, he atones for our sins, and he propitiates God because of what he's done for our sins. That's good news. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Who's the our sins? Not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. There's a contrast there between our sins and for those of the whole world. Well, here's some options. John Gill says it's this way. John is saying, God, Jesus is propitiated for our Jewish sins. He's Jewish. John's Jewish. And he says he's propitiated Jewish sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. That wouldn't be the Gentiles. That's reasonable. Let me give you a quote from Gill to back that up. Nothing is more common in Jewish writings than to call the Gentiles, and there's some Hebrew, the world, and quote the whole world, and quote the nations of the world. And the word world is so used in Scripture, and in quotes John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it's talking about all the Gentile nations of the world, and stands opposed to a notion the Jews have of the Gentiles, that there is no propitiation for them. So Gill, who is very versed in Jewish culture, he's saying, the Jews have this idea that Gentiles will never get propitiation. They'll never have propitiation for their sins. We'll never we can never see God propitiated for the sins of the Gentiles. And John is saying that's not true. He not only propitiates Jewish sins, he propitiates Gentile sins. Well, that's reasonable. could be another option, though. John could be saying he's propitiation for our sins here in Ephesus, where I'm writing, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole geographic world beyond. Maybe. Third option. He, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, meaning us apostles, and not only for apostles, us apostles, but also for the whole world. In other words, we're not trying to be big shots here by saying that we're the only ones. We are the favored few that have gotten propitiation, but the whole world has. Now, all three of those options are work, but I think the best one, in my opinion, is Gills. is talking about not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. There is propitiation for sins. Now, let's talk about another issue here. Here, the issue of general atonement versus limited atonement. Is Jesus the propitiation for those of the whole world? Does that mean for every single person in the world? Well, that leads to thoughts of universal salvation. There's nobody going to hell. Everybody's saved, whether they live like hell or not, whether they confess and believe with their heart that Jesus is Lord, whether they have faith and repent or not. Well, of course, we don't believe that. That's nonsense. 
So we know that, or at least most of us know that, that Jesus doesn't save the whole world, but what about this? What if he gave himself an atoning sacrifice, as the NIV has, a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for the whole world, every individual in the world? Then you have general atonement, which is the Armenian view that Jesus' atonement covers the sins of the whole world. Everybody, Adolf Hitler, Paul Pot, Mao Zedong, Nancy Pelosi, everybody, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, everybody's sins individually, whether they're saved or not. But on the other hand, if you have a, take a limited atonement view of this, it means that Jesus has propitiated the sins of the whole world in the sense of every group in the world, whether Jew, whether Gentile, whether Outer Mongolian, whether French, whether English, whether German, that kind of thing. So let's look at this issue of general versus limited atonement. Here's the first problem with saying that Jesus died for every single individual sinner in the world. John 17, 9, Jesus says, high priestly prayer. This is after the communion, last supper. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world. Now, wait a minute. You mean Jesus died for the world? His, his atonement, is, it was provided for the whole world, every individual in the world, and Jesus is not even praying for the people he atoned for? That doesn't make any sense. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they're yours. In other words, he's praying for the elect. That's limited atonement. That's a great limited atonement verse. I remember so well, I was going over John in an in informal Bible study with a, two Roman Catholics and a Christian Missionary Alliance couple in China, all, b both of which are obviously very Arminian in the case of the Protestants and, shall we say, non-Augustinian in the case of the Catholics. And the Catholic brother, a young guy, after I was jumped on, by mentioning these verses. And John has a lot of verses like this. You know, you are my sheep of the sheepfold, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of verses that talk about Jesus dying for the elect and not for the whole world. And I would just mention it. I didn't mention the theological buzzwords, limited atonement. I didn't say anything about that. But, oh, you should have seen those Christian Missionary Alliance people's hair rise up on the back of their neck. They got all upset and started going on and on and on. So I just let them ventilate and went on. Didn't, didn't push the point. Walking home with the Catholics that night, the Catholic brother says to me, he says, you know, I think you were right. And I didn't even make an argument for it. And he's Catholic. So all of his theological predilections were against limited atonement. I didn't even make a case for limited atonement. And he just read John and says, you know, I think you're right. Yeah, because it's obvious. Now, another reason why we would think this is not general atonement here, how is it going to comfort John's readers to know that Jesus gave a propitiation for every sinner in the world because the readers would know that there would be some of those people that were propitiated for who ended up in hell, and they might be in the same category. Oh, Jesus died for my sins, but I might end up in hell. Now, how's that going to do those sinners any bit of good? The sinner would immediately think, well, perhaps Jesus' propitiation wasn't good enough to get me saved. Nevertheless, Adam Clark, the staunch Arminian, says this, quote, The apostle does not say that he died for any select part of the inhabitants of the earth, or for some out of every nation, tribe, or kindred, but for... All mankind, capital A, capital M, all mankind. And the attempt to limit this is a violent outrage against God and his word. Well, quite frankly, I think that Adam Clark has become hysterical because his case is so weak. What part of John 17, 9 does he not understand? I am not praying for the world. I mean, I guess an Armenian could say, well, right then he wasn't praying for the world, a high priestly prayer, but he took some time elsewhere to do it. That would be a very weak argument from silence. All right, so let's look at the limited atonement view. I've already basically given it to you in contradicting the general atonement view, but 
The limited atonement views, the Calvinist view, the Augustinian views that says that Christ's sacrifice is not for one, for one group only, but for all groups of mankind. Now, of course, that doesn't mean universal salvation. It rather shows that God is an impartial God. He doesn't discriminate against one category of humankind. And I think that's the right answer. We don't have time to go into a whole discussion of limited atonement. It's a great theological discussion, which very few Christians ever get involved in unless they're Reformed. I think every Christian should should look at that, should look at the Reformed argument for limited atonement. It's quite powerful. We now go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his command. And now this is probably a dig at the Gnostic heretics, because gnosis means to know. That's what where Gnostic comes from, and we know that John is fighting not some kind of proto-Gnostic heretic, some kind of incipient Gnosticism that says that the body's not real and the body's not important because it's evil. The evil demiurge made the flesh, but God is pure light. He's non-physical. He's totally spiritual. And in order to know this spiritual being, we've got to get out of our bodies and we've got to go through the angelic hierarchies using passwords at every level of the hierarchy, mumbo-jumbo esoteric knowledge. But John says, no, you don't need to do that. This is how we know that we know Jesus. It's by keeping his commands. Keeping his commands. That keeping is one of John's favorite words in his letter. It does not refer to one who has perfectly kept God's commands, because who's done that? But he's saying that if you keep his commands, which means if you live a life that is generally generally characterized by obedience, if you do that, then you know you know him. Now, notice that John refers to Jesus' commands Jesus has law, too, just like Moses. John didn't refer to Mosaic law. He didn't refer to Old Testament law. That had been done away with, as the book of Hebrews, Galatians, and Romans clearly shows. Jameson Fawcett Brown says here, John never uses the expression, quote, the law, unquote, to express the rule of Christian obedience. He uses it as the Mosaic law. Ooh, that sort of contradicts Reformed theology about the law, the third use of the law being sanctification a rule of life to tell us how to live. Paul never uses that kind of terminology, third use of the law. The law means the Mosaic law, and we don't obey that anymore because we have his commands to obey by keeping his commands, 1 John 2, 3. Going back to that word, knowing Jesus, knowing him, 42 times 1 John uses the word, I know, using two different Greek words, one of which is a form of gnosis, which, from which we get the Gnostics. So 42 times John uses that word, and that's how we know most probably that he's fighting the Gnostic heresy. We go now to verses 4, 5, and 6 in 1 John chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Now, the one who says two options on that, it could be the proto-Gnostic heretics who says, I've come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands. And I suspect that's exactly what John was referring to there. That makes a great, good, strong contrast with verse 5, which is obviously talking about Christians in whom the love of God is perfected. Some people, however, say the one who says, I've come to know him, yet don't keep his commands, is a backsliding Christian, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't think John's going to call his little children liars. I think it's heretics. We went over this problem in chapter 1 also. And I came down on the side that when John is referring to people who need to confess their sins, he's talking about heretics. He's not talking about believers. The one who says, I've come to know him, that him, it's always ambiguous, but here it's probably Jesus, Jesus the Son, not God the Father. Verse 5, now he goes to verse 5, but whoever keeps his words, the whoever now is talking about Christians keeping the word. Again, 
It doesn't mean perfectly, keep it perfectly, but keep to the best of one's maturity and sanctification level. Whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is perfected. Now, John also said in his gospel something about keeping the word of God, the word of Christ. John 14, 21, the one who has my commands, Jesus is speaking, and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's a very similar thought here in John as it is in 1 John. How do you love Jesus? You don't just feel good about Jesus. You keep his commands. Remember, love is something active. It's something you do. And in the case of loving Jesus, it's keeping his commands. It's something that you do. That's the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Jesus does something back to us, too. In showing his love to us, he reveals himself to us. Now, in verse 5, we find out that keeping the word, we have the love of God being perfected. Now, the question is, is... Which way did this love of God go? Is it love of God, God's love for us Christians, or is it Christians' love for God? That's because of the ambiguity of the Greek there. These subjective and objective genitives are hard to translate. You have to go by context. Truly in him, the love of God is perfected. So our options, according to the NIV Study Bible, is God's love for the believer or the believer's love for God. So we can say that God's love for the believer is complete when the believer obeys. If you keep Jesus' commandments, then you love Jesus completely with maturity. And I, that, I think that makes more sense. You keep his commandments, then you're loving him at the same time. The more you keep his commandments, the more you love him, and you move toward maturity in love. The other option is the love of God is completed. That means God's love for us is perfected or completed. What's the problem with that? God's love is perfected. God's love already is perfect. He loves us with a perfect love. How's it, how can it increase from what it already is? I guess you could say that the effects of his love are made complete. He loves us in heaven, you know, perfectly, but we don't see the outworkings of his love completely yet. That happens on a gradual basis. I don't think so. I think it's a believer's love for God is what gets made perfect when we keep his commandments. Now in verse 6, John says, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked that in him. I looked up a bunch of definitions for in and Greek lexicons, and, fi and, I f and I found that in union with is a perfectly good translation. And then I found Jameson, Foss, and Brown in a scripture somewhere, I don't remember where, Jameson, Foss, and Brown said this can be translated as in union with. And so my suspicions were confirmed by that commentary, and so now whenever I say in, I automatically say in union with. The one who says he remains in union with him should walk just as he walked. And walk, of course, is a synonym for live. He should live just like Jesus lived. Jesus is our example. Paul says to his Christians, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate Jesus. We should walk as he walked. Walk. We should walk as he walked. This is a method that John gives his readers to distinguish the heretics from the faithful. We've already had the fellowship test if you're in fellowship with your brother and with god that's that way you know whether your brother's a true brother or not now another way you know whether your brother's a true brother or not is whether he passes the moral test does he keep god's word does he keep jesus's words again that's one of the purposes of the letter is to help the christians distinguish themselves from the heretics first john 2 7 dear friends i am not writing you a new command but an old command that you have had from the beginning the old command is the message you have heard now before we get started on verse 7, we need to realize in verse 8, he's going to immediately turn around and say, but on the other hand, I'm writing you a new command. So in verse 6, he writes an old, an old command, and in verse 8, he writes a new command, and you say, wait a minute, that's contradicting. Well, of course, it's not contradictory. John is no dummy. He wouldn't put something patently contradictory 
in two verses side by side with each other. So let's see what he means. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command. Now, let's take the old command. I'm writing to you an old command. The old command was a commandment of love, because he's going to be talking about love, loving God, loving Jesus, loving your brother, in the context following. So he's saying, this, is a, this commandment of love I'm writing you is an old command. Well, how is it an old command? Well, it was in the Old Covenant. Here's the scripture that proves that's a famous scripture quoted all the time, and here it's quoted by the NIV Study Bible. Leviticus 19.18, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's right there in the Old Testament law. So John is saying, hey, when I tell you to love your brother, I'm telling you something that you've had in the Old Testament law. It's, not, it's an old command. You've had it from the beginning. Now, of course, what does beginning mean? I'm going to give you, give you five options moving from the past toward the future. It can mean from the eternity. Love is founded upon the unalterable nature and eternal will of God, and so you've had that command from the beginning. Well, I have a problem with that because people weren't around at the beginning when God made the earth. So how about the beginning means from the time Adam was made. Love was written on Adam's heart in a state of innocence. Romans chapter 2, you got the conscience, you know, and so and before the conscience you had love was just there because Adam was in the image of God. So you've had that command love all the way from Adam's time, from the beginning. Most probably it's from the time of the Mosaic Law, as the NIV Study Bible says. As John Gill says, love for God and man is the sum and substance of the Mosaic Law. Got no problem with that. You've had it from the beginning. It was even in the Mosaic Law. How about this? You've had it from the beginning of the church. Jesus and apostles taught love from the very beginning that, they, that he got his apostles together and started teaching them. He taught them about love. The mark of the Christian is love. You should love one another. You should love your enemies. He talked about love all the time. Love, 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 love. So you've had it. So I'm not writing anything new to you. You've already had it. And finally, an, another way you could say from the beginning, you could say from the beginning of their Christian experience, as soon as they got born again, not from the beginning of the church, but from the beginning of their individual Christian lives, when they became believers, as soon as they became believers, they had love of God and love of mankind, love of the brother, either written on their hearts or taught to them by their mentors. Well, as you see, that's a little bit ambiguous as to what old is, old from the beginning. I tend to think it's the Mosaic Law, because remember, John's Jewish and he'd be talking about that. And immediately he's going to turn that around and say, yeah, but now we don't care about that anymore because now we've got a new command. That's in verse 8. We're not there yet. The old command is the message you have heard. That, again, is Jews. They would have heard, assuming he's writing to Jews. Now, of course, he could be writing to Gentiles, too. So, but I, that's ambiguous. I'm not, we're not sure what this old message was, what this old command was. Was it the law of conscience written on the heart of a Gentile? Was it the law of Moses written down for a Jew? Whatever it is, though, it's an old command. Now let's go to the new command in verse 8. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you. So this command in union with Jesus, that's the law of Christ. The command is a law, and it belongs to Jesus, so it's the law of Christ. I am writing you a new command which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, how is Jesus, how is John saying that he is now writing a new command which is somehow different than an old command which he said he was writing? It's because there's an overlap between the old and the new command. There's an overlap, there's some continuity, but there's also some discontinuity too. I'm writing you a new command. Now, here's some options how to reconcile the old and the new command. Here's Adam Clark and John Gill's idea that the difference was not a difference in essence, but a difference in degree of light and grace. In other words, Moses said to love, but Jesus says to love more. And John Gill says when Jesus says to love, there's none of this pharisaical 
and scribal glosses that have been written all over the law. Okay, well, that's an option. Here's another option. The new law, the new command, is different in clarity from the old command, which I'm assuming is the Mosaic law. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It, the, the law, was the old law, was first clearly promulgated with Christianity, excuse me, the new law, was first clearly promulgated with Christianity. Though the inner spirit of the law was love even to enemies, yet it was enveloped in some bitter precepts which caused it to be temporarily almost unrecognized till the gospel came. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. It means the law in the old covenant was first promulgated with Christianity. In other words, Christians repeated that old covenant law. Though the inner spirit of the law was love even to enemies, yet it was enveloped in some bitter precepts. That's talking about the the nastiness in the Old Testament law. You break this law, I'm going to beat your head in, basically. I'm going to destroy you. Bitter precepts which caused it to be temporarily almost unrecognized. That little verse in Leviticus 19 that's not quoted too much by the rabbis. Till the gospel came and then Christianity emphasized love. Love, love, love. Christianity first put love to brethren on the new and highest motive. Instinctive love to him who first loved us. Constraining us to love all, even enemies. Therefore walking in the steps of him who loved us when enemies. Well, that's reasonable that the new the new the law of Christ has a higher level of law than the old than the Mosaic love. Now, Reformed Covenant theologians don't believe that. They believe the law is flat, that Jesus merely exposits the Mosaic law. He does not expand and elevate the Mosaic law, and I think they're entirely wrong on that. So I'm assuming that this new command is something different. It's something different, not only in clarity. Well, it's different in clarity and brightness. Let's look at this commandment of love that Jesus talks about, the law of Christ. John 13, 34 through 35. I give you a new command. Same phrase there, a new command, a new law. Love one another. I believe that means the Mosaic law has gone away with. We don't mess with that now, but we have the law of Christ, which is to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15:12 This is my command love one another as I have loved you. So you see the law of Christ is directly connected to love one another. Now in verse 8 John says the new command which is true in union with him and he in union with you this new command the reason I'm writing to you this new command is because the darkness is passing away. Darkness of course can usually does refer to sins. John Gill says it could be the darkness of the shadows and types. Because they're not reality yet. They haven't been fulfilled yet. There's no substance yet. So so uh, the types are passing away. Well, I don't think so. I've always read that as sin is passing away. Why is it passing away? Notice the, the progressive tense, the progressive present tense is passing. It's in the process of passing away. Because the gospel is in the process of spreading. As it gradually spreads and permeates society, more and more darkness is dispelled. The true light is already shining. That could be the true light of the gospel, of course could be Jesus himself. John 1, 9 says this, The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That, of course, refers to Jesus personally. John eight twelve. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus himself says he's light. So the light is spreading. Jesus is spreading. It could be the gospel, but I think it's Jesus. It's already shining. That's the new command, the command of Christ, the law of Christ. Verses 9, 10, and 11, 1 John. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness 
walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one who says he is in the light, the one who says he is in, in union with Jesus, but at the same time hates his brother, guess what? He's not in union with Jesus. He just says he is. So this is another test for John's readers to discern heretics. Do they love the brethren? Do they walk in fellowship with God? Do they keep Jesus' commandments? And the third test here is do they love the brethren? I think some people call it the social test. And this chapter, 1 John 2, verse 6, just three verses previous, John says the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. That's the moral test. Are you keeping his commands? And now he's, talking, he's asking the Christians there, are you loving your brother? If you, someone among you says he's loving his brother, but he doesn't, he's not one of you. He's in darkness, walks in darkness. The darkness has blinded his eyes. He's not one of you. Now, verse 10 says, the one who loves his brother remains in the light. Well, first, first of all, first, verse 9 is talking about heretics. The one who says he's in the light but hates his brother, that's not a Christian. A Christian's not going to hate his brother. So let's talk about heretics. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother, that's talking about Christian. And as the NIV study Bible says, in the Bible, hatred and love are not primarily emotions, but attitudes expressed in actions. I love to tell people this, especially young college students who are in love. I say, why are you getting married? Because I love him. Oh, you love him, huh? So the reason you're married is because you want to serve him. You want to make his life better. Or is it because purely selfish reasons that it, that's, it has a, there's a need in your life? You just want to get married. And, of course, they all, I catch them all on that because they all have selfish reasons for getting married. And the next thing I say was, isn't being selfish the exact opposite of love? Do you really know what love is? Or is it this, uh, the Chinese word is xin rong peng dong, which means the heart, the shakings of a heart, infatuation. That is what human beings look at as love. And that's not love. Love is what you do. Now, we'll see this idea of loving your brother in our next chapter, 1 John 3, 15 and 16. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So that's why I say these are heretics. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. That's something you do. That's something Jesus did. He just didn't feel good about us. He did something for us. We should also lay down our loves for our, lay down our lives for our brothers. We should do something for them, serve them every chance you get. And it's fulfilling, too. You love your brother and you do something for him, it, it just feels good. I mean, because God made us to feel pleased about that. There's no cause for stumbling in this one who loves his brother and who remains in the light. No cause for stumbling. And that's either stumbling of the brother that's being loved and no cause for stumbling in the brother that's doing the loving. Mm. I think it refers to, in my humble opinion, there's no cause for stumbling in the brother who is exhorted to do the loving. Nothing happens to him. He's not put to shame because he's loving his brother. You want to be safe? You want to be secure? Love your brother. You won't stumble. You won't fall. You could take it. You don't cause your brother to stumble when you love him. You don't do something that you don't put an obstacle in his path that makes his path difficult to make him stumble. It could be that, too. Just depends on how you read it. But I tend to think it's you love your brother. You won't stumble yourself. Verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, notice the reverse metaphor there. It's usually light that blinds one's eyes. Darkness doesn't really blind your eyes, but he's saying here that you get into darkness so much, all of a sudden your eyes go dark. They get blinded. Well, now you can't see. So someone who doesn't love his brother and doesn't love Jesus, someone who hates his brother is a blind fool. He doesn't know where he's going. He's stumbling around, wondering what he's doing on earth. Why was he put here? 
We go to 1 John 2, verse 12, 13, and 14. I am writing to you, John says, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. Nice starting over again. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Now, John starts out writing to little children. That's all of his readers, as Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown says. He later breaks all of his children down into three categories, fathers, young men, and children. So little children is referring to all of them, but the children, the third category of little children is just, is just children, and that's, so that subcategory of children is different than the big category of little children. Your sins have been forgiven. I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. Now, the reason he says this, according to the NIV Study Bible, the reason he repeats this over and over again, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men, the reason he's emphasizing all this over and over again, talking about their victory and that God's word remains in them and they've been forgiven, is they need to be assured. Why? Because John has just given a lot of rigorous tests about people who aren't saved, people who need to confess their sins, 1 John 1, 9, so that they might be saved, people who don't love their brother but who are murderers, people who don't keep the commands of Christ. So he's talked a lot about bad people in the church, and he wants to make sure that the true children in the church know that they have been forgiven and that they're not being condemned. It's a good balance. All right, so he starts out by writing to you fathers in verse 13. He's writing to those of greater age. Fathers means the old codgers in the church. He says, why does he start with them? Because you've come to know the one, that's probably Jesus, could be God, who is from the beginning. Fathers are more likely going to be around at the beginning because they're older. So that's why it starts with fathers. Now, he could be a father, he could be writing to fathers chronologically who are older chronologically, or he could be referring to age in the Lord, fathers who have been Christians for a long time. I tend to think he's talking about chronological age. Some people say he might be referring to those who had seen Jesus in the flesh. I'm writing to, you, to those of you old guys who've actually seen Jesus in the flesh, maybe. But at any rate, he starts out with fathers who've known God from the beginning. There's a reason for that because John picks out key characteristics of the different age groups and emphasizes those characteristics characteristics as fitting that age group. For example, fathers have known God from the beginning. Why? Because they're old enough to go back to the beginning. Uh, young men, they're strong. They fight and they receive a victory in a fight. Well, typically you let young men fight. Old men don't fight. Young men do. And then little children, they come to know their father, which means they grow to know their father. So we'll see this as we go through. Now, fathers have known God from the beginning. Again, that word beginning is a little ambiguous. It could be the beginning of time. I don't know how you... Well, I guess you could say that because it's the one who is from the beginning, not the fathers, but God who is from the beginning. That doesn't really fit, though, in my opinion, because he's talking about fathers who are able to know from the beginning because they're old. I don't care how old you are. You weren't around at the beginning of time. Beginning of the created world, same problem there. You're not at the beginning of the world. The beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, some people have suggested that. Old men were around, fathers were around when Jesus got started. Well, that could be. Or it could be the beginning of the reader's Christian life. I'm writing to fathers because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning of your life. I don't believe that because that could refer to a young man who just got saved. So I tend to think it's from the beginning of Jesus' ministry or the beginning of the church, maybe. 
been around for a while, so you know. And then he says, I am writing to you, the young men. What does that mean, am writing? Well, he's referring to the letter of 1 John, the letter he's writing now. So I'm writing 1 John to you, young men, because you've had victory over the evil one. And I've said, young men, they have victory. Again, this is positive. You know, you've got victory appropriate for young, strong men. Despite all the opposition that Christians have in the world, we need to remember we've got victory. We're going to win, despite the fact it looks awful a lot of times. And then he says in verse 14, I'm writing to you, little children, because you have come to know the Father. Well, what do little children do? They don't know who that big man is in their house when they get born, but they come to know him as the father spends time with him and the child spends time with the father. They come to know him. In fact, knowing one's father, according to John Gill, is one of the first and most necessary things for a child to know. And notice how in verse 14, after he's already gone through the three groups, fathers, young men, and children, he starts over again. Right in the middle of verse 14, I've written to you fathers because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. He repeats it. Emphasis. I've written to you young men because you are strong. Well, at first he mentioned the young men, but they had victory. And then he says they're strong because young men tend to be strong. God's word remains in you. The word of God, either written or living, is in you. And you've had victory over the evil word. One, that is a good application point there. If you want to have victory over the, over Satan, get the Bible in you. Get the word in you. Study the Bible and don't just play around with it five minutes a day. It's not going to get the job done. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. We've talked about Christ our advocate. And we've talked about Jesus' new commandment, the law of Christ. Now, in our next audio, we're going to take up 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 28, in which John says, don't love the world. And then he warns against coming antichrist. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 